Chapter Seventeen of An Old Man's Love by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Whittlestaff meditates a journey. The next day was Sunday, and was passed in absolute tranquillity. Nothing was said either by Mr. Whittlestaff or by Mary Laurie, nor to the eyes of those among whom they lived was there anything to show that their minds were disturbed. They went to church in the morning, as was usual with them, and Mary went also to the evening service. It was quite pleasant to see Mrs. Baggett start for her slow Sabbath morning walk, and to observe how her appearance altogether belied that idea of rags and tatters which she had given as to her own wardrobe. A nicer dressed old lady, or a more becoming black silk gown, you shall not see on a Sunday morning, making her way to any country church in England. While she was looking so pleasant and demure, one may say almost so handsome, in her old-fashioned and apparently new bonnet, what could have been her thoughts respecting the red-nosed one-legged warrior? and her intended life to be passed in fetching two pennyworths of gin for him, and her endeavours to get for him a morsel of wholesome food. She had had her breakfast out of her own china teacup, which she used to boast was her own property, as it had been given to her by Mr. Whittlestaff's mother, and had had her little drop of cream, and to tell the truth her boiled egg, which she always had on a Sunday morning, to enable her to listen to the long sermon of the Reverend Mr. Lowlad. She would talk of her hopes and her burdens, and undoubtedly she was in earnest. But she certainly did seem to make her hay very comfortably while the sun shone. Everything on this Sunday morning was pleasant, or apparently pleasant, at Croker's Hall. In the evening, when Mary and the maid-servants went to church, leaving Mrs. Baggett at home to look after the house and go to sleep, Mr. Whittlestaff walked off to the wooded path with his Horace. He did not read it very long. The bits which he did usually read never amounted to much at a time. He would take a few lines and then digest them thoroughly, wailing over them or rejoicing, as the case might be. He was not at the present moment much given to joy, Intermissa venus deodoris bella moves, parque precor precor. This was the passage to which he turned at the present moment, and very little was the consolation which he found in it. What was so crafty, he said to himself, or so vain, as that an old man should hark back to the pleasures of a time of life which was past and gone? Non sum qualis eram, he said, and then thought with shame of the time when he had been jilted by Catherine Bailey, the time in which he had certainly been young enough to love and be loved, had he been as lovable as he had been prone to love. He then put the book in his pocket. His latter effort had been to recover something of the sweetness of life, and not, as had been the poet's, to drain those dregs to the bottom. But when he got home he bade Mary tell him what Mr. Lowlad had said in his sermon, 
and was quite cheery in his manner of picking Mr. Lowlad's theology to pieces. For Mr. Whittlestaff did not altogether agree with Mr. Lowlad as to the uses to be made of the Sabbath. On the next morning he began to bustle about a little, as was usual with him before he made a journey, and it did escape him while he was talking to Mrs. Baggett about a pair of trousers which it turned out that he had given away last summer that he meditated a journey to London on the next day. "'You ain't a-going,' said Mrs. Baggett. "'I think I shall.' "'Then don't. Take my word for it, sir. Don't.' But Mr. Whittlestaff only snubbed her, and nothing more was said about the journey at the moment. In the course of the afternoon visitors came. Miss Evelina Hall with Miss Forrester had been driven into Alresford, and now called in company with Mr. Blake. Mr. Blake was full of his own good tidings, but not so full but that he could remember, before he took his departure, to say a half-whispered word on behalf of John Gordon. "'What do you think, Mr. Whittlestaff? Since you are at Little Alresford, we've settled the day.' "'You needn't be telling it to everybody about the county,' said Katie Forrester. "'Why shouldn't I tell it to my particular friends? I am sure Miss Laurie will be delighted to hear it.' "'Indeed I am,' said Mary. "'And Mr. Whittlestaff also? Are you not, Mr. Whittlestaff?' I am very happy to hear that a couple whom I like so well are soon to be made happy. But you have not yet told us the day. The first of August, said Evelina Hall. The first of August, said Mr. Blake, is an auspicious day. I am sure there is some reason for regarding it as auspicious, though I cannot exactly remember what. It is something about Augustus, I think. I never heard of such an idea to come from a clergyman of the Church of England, said the bride. I declare Montague never seems to think that he is a clergyman at all. It will be better for him, said Mr. Whittlestaff, and for all those about him, that he should ever remember the fact, and never seem to do so. All the same, said Blake, Although the first of August is auspicious, I was very anxious to be married in July. Only the painters said they couldn't be done with a house in time. One is obliged to go by what these sort of people say and do. We're to have a month's honeymoon, only just a month, because Mr. Lowlad won't make himself as agreeable as he ought to do about the services. And Newface the plumber and glazier says he can't have the house done as Katie would like to live in it before the end of August. Where do you think we're going to, Miss Laurie? You would never guess. Perhaps to Rome, said Mary, at a shot. Not quite so far. We're going to the Isle of Wight. It's rather remarkable that I never spent but one week in the Isle of Wight since I was born. We haven't quite made up our mind whether it's to be Black Gang Chine or Ventnor. It's a matter of dresses, you see. Don't be a fool, Montague, said Miss Forrester. Well, it is. If we decide upon Ventnor, she must have frocks and things to come out with. I suppose so, said Mr. Whittlestaff. But she'll want nothing of the kind at Black Gang. Do hold your tongue and not make an ass of yourself. What do you know what dresses I shall want? 
as it is i don't think i shall go either to the one place or the other the smiths are at ride and the girls are my great friends i think we'll go to ride after all i'm so sorry mr whittlestaff that we can't expect the pleasure of seeing you at our wedding it is of course imperative that katie should be married in the cathedral her father is one of the dignitaries and could not bear not to put his best foot foremost on such an occasion the dean will be there of course i'm afraid the bishop cannot come up from farnham because he will have friends with him i am afraid john gordon will have gone by that time or else we certainly would have had him down i should like john gordon to be present because he would see how the kind of thing is done the name of john gordon at once silenced all the matrimonial chit-chat which was going on among them it was manifest both to mr whittlestaff and to mary that it had been lugged in without a cause to enable mr blake to talk about the absent man it would have been pleasant eh katie we should have been very glad to see mr gordon if it would have suited him to come said miss forrester it would have been just the thing for him and we at oxford together and everything don't you think he would have liked to be there it would have put him in mind of other things you know to this appeal there was no answer made it was impossible that mary should bring herself to talk about john gordon in mixed company and the allusion to him stirred mr whittlestaff's wrath of course it was understood as having been spoken in mary's favour and mr whittlestaff had been made to perceive by what had passed at little alresford that the little alresford people all took the side of john gordon and were supposed to be taking the side of mary at the same time there was not one of them he said to himself that had half the sense of mrs baggett and there was a vulgarity about their interference of which mrs baggett was not guilty he is halfway on his road to the diamond fields said evelina and went away from here on saturday morning said montague blake he has not started yet not dreamed of it i heard him whisper to mr whittlestaff about his address he's to be in london at his club i didn't hear him say for how long but when a man gives his address at his club he doesn't mean to go away at once i have a plan in my head some of those boats go to the diamond fields from southampton all the steamers go everywhere from southampton winchester is on the way to southampton nothing will be easier for him than to drop in for our marriage on his way out that is if he must go at last then he looked hard at mary laurie and bring some of his diamonds with him said evelina hall that would be very nice but not a word more was said then about john gordon by the inhabitants of croker's hall and after that the visitors went and montague blake chaperoned the girls out of the house without an idea that he had made himself disagreeable that young man is a most egregious ass said mr whittlestaff he is good-natured and simple but i doubt whether he sees things very plainly he has not an idea of what a man may talk about and when he should hold his tongue and he is such a fool as to think that his idle chatter can influence others i don't suppose a bishop can refuse to ordain a gentleman because he is a general idiot 
Otherwise, I think the bishop is responsible for letting in such an ass as this. Mary said to herself, as she heard this, that it was the most ill-natured remark which she had ever known to fall from the mouth of Mr. Whittlestaff. "'I think I am going away for a few days,' Mr. Whittlestaff said to Mary, when the visitors were gone. "'Where are you going?' "'Well, I suppose I shall be in London. When one goes anywhere, it is generally to London, though I haven't been there for more than two months.' "'Not since I came to live with you,' she said. "'You are the most stay-at-home person, by way of a gentleman, that I ever heard of.' Then there was a pause for a few minutes, and he said nothing further. "'Might a person ask what you are going for?' This she asked in the playful manner which she knew he would take in good part. "'Well, I don't quite know that a person can. I am going to see a man upon business.' and if I began to tell you part of it, I must tell it all, which would not be convenient. May I not ask how long you will be away? There can't be any dreadful secret in that, and I shall want to know what to get for your dinner when you come back. She was standing now at his elbow, and he was holding her by the arm. It was to him almost as though she were already his wife, and the feeling to him was very pleasant. Only, if she were his wife, or if it were positively decided among them that she would become so, he would certainly tell her the reason for which he might undertake any journey. Indeed, there was no reason connected with any business of his which might not be told, other than that special reason which was about to take him to London. He only answered her now by pressing her hand and smiling into her face. "'Will it be for a month?' Oh, dear, no. What should I do away from home for a month? How can I tell? The mysterious business may require you to be absent for a whole year. Fancy my being left at home all that time. You don't think of it, but you have never left me for a single night since you first brought me to live here. And you have never been away. Oh, no. Why should I go away? What business can a woman have to move from home, especially such a woman as I am? You are just like Mrs. Baggett. She always talks of women with supreme contempt, and yet she is just as proud of herself as the queen when you come to contradict her. You never contradict me. Perhaps the day may come when I shall. Then he recollected himself and added, Or perhaps the day may never come. Never mind, put up my things for one week. At any rate, I shall not be above a week gone. Then she left him and went away to his room to do what was necessary. She knew the business on which he was about to travel to London as well as though he had discussed with her the whole affair. In the course of the last two or three days there had been moments in which she had declared to herself that he was cruel. There had been moments in which she had fainted almost with sorrow, when she thought of the life which fate had in store for her. There must be endless misery, while there might have been joy, so ecstatic in its nature as to make it seem to her to be perennial. Then she had almost fallen, and had declared him to be preternaturally cruel. But these moments had been short, and had endured only while she had allowed herself to dream of the ecstatic joy 
which she confessed to herself to be an unfit condition of life for her. And then she had told herself that Mr. Whittlestaff was not cruel, and that she herself was no better than a weak, poor, flighty creature, unable to look in its face, life, and all its realities. And then she would be lost in amazement as she thought of herself and all her vacillations. She now was resolved to take his part and to fight his battle to the end. When he had told her that he was going up to London, and going up on business as to which he could tell her nothing, she knew that it behoved her to prevent him from taking the journey. John Gordon should be allowed to go in quest of his diamonds, and Mr. Whittlestaff should be persuaded not to interfere with him. It was for her sake, and not for John Gordon's, that he was about to make the journey. He had asked her whether she were willing to marry him, and she had told him that he was pressing her too hard. She would tell him now, now, before it was too late, that this was not so. His journey to London must at any rate be prevented. End of chapter 17 Recording by Arnold Banner Thurmond, North Carolina.